Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast every week. My guest this week is Chris Johnson. Chris is a space lawyer with the Secure World Foundation. He's authored and co-authored publications on international space law, national space legislation, international cooperation in space, human robotic cooperative space exploration, and on the societal benefits of space technology for Africa. And Chris, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Let's begin, Chris, by talking about the Secure World Foundation, what it is and what it does. Certainly. So um, we are, the Secure World Foundation is a non-governmental organization, an NGO, and we work in the space, the area of space sustainability and peaceful uses of outer space, preventing conflict in space, and really trying to use and make sure that space applications and technologies can be used for the benefit of people here on Earth. So um, we work with academia, with, uh, you know, governments, foreign, um, foreign ministries, with space agencies, and also with the commercial sector in trying to promote these concepts and really break down barriers between, um, between stakeholders who use the space domain and get everyone kind of sharing their interests and their concerns so that we can continue to use space as, pro- as productively and hopefully more productively than we have in the past. So you're a space lawyer, which I assume is a fairly recent specialty, um, at least in the last 50 years or so. What what attracted you to want to try to understand space law? Well, so I um, worked for just a little bit as a regular <laughs> regular attorney in New York City okay. uh, doing corporate and securities law. And um, this was around the time of the, the crash, 2007-2008. And I took night classes at uh, NYU, and I took classes on international law and found out that there is such a thing as space law. And I was kind of blown away that there's an outer space treaty and an astronaut agreement and a moon treaty. Um, and I, I, it didn't seem real. And so I, I went to a couple conferences, and I met actual space lawyers, you know, people that work at NASA right. and in the military and the commercial side. And I thought, well, I think I want to do this. I think I want to try and actually see if I can work in the space field. So it took quite a while to get into it, but there are, you know, practicing space lawyers at, at space agencies, at, at, you know, state department mm-hmm. and increasingly at uh, large and small aerospace companies. So what are some of the basic principles of space law? So we really start uh, because, you know, space exists outside of a state's territory. You know, it's above everyone. So we therefore we have to start at the international level. And we really start with, uh, you know, the bedrock of space law is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. And there's a few treaties that follow that. Like I mentioned, the astronaut agreement, the liability convention, the registration convention. But really the, the principles of space law are you know, for one, it's that governments are the the final responsible entity, that whatever a a national actor does, whatever a private company does, a a government is at the end going to be responsible for what they do or answerable um, for those activities. And that was um, 
it actually was a compromise between the US and the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union did not want any commercial activities in space. And the US position, the compromise position that they offered was, okay, how about if we allow commercial activities in space, but a state is ultimately responsible for them? Okay. And the Soviets accepted that proposal, and therefore we have Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty. So there's that, but then there's also a few other provisions dealing with um, you know, states uh, continue to have jurisdiction over their space objects. Uh, so a state uh, you know, continues to be able to assert its laws over space objects. States should register those objects with the United Nations and generally let the world know what they're, you know, what belongs to them in space. Um, there's potential liability provisions should those objects cause damage. Um, there's more general notions about due regard and cooperation and assistance to uh, the activities of other states and even, uh, you know, assistance to astronauts in distress. That's in um that's in the Outer Space Treaty and also in the uh, the Astronaut Rescue and Return Agreement. And then there is the famous or should I say infamous Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty, which is a nuanced article of only 17 words long, but really has occasioned a whole lot of debate in the, you know, in the 50 years since it was promulgated and, and adopted. And that deals with, uh, you know, it is it is essentially impermissible for a state to claim an area on the moon or any celestial body as a, as a territory. It's, it's illegal for a state to annex a territory on the moon. Uh, and that's really the, how I view the, the explicit prohibition on national appropriation in Article Two of the Outer Space Treaty. But the good news is that even though uh, states cannot annex territory in space, space itself the, you know, celestial bodies, the moon, the resources that we find in space is a resource that we can go and use in space that we're allowed to use uh, for beneficial purposes, purposes, so long as those purposes are, you know, uh, peaceful in nature and, you know, don't otherwise contradict or violate international law. So those are the basic principles of space law. Okay. And, you know, the, the Outer Space Treaty is a short treaty compared to other huge treaties. Right. And I really encourage everyone to to take, you know, the half an hour, brew a pot of coffee, sit down and read the treaty. And, and you'll find that it says a lot, but there's a lot where it is modest and silent on a lot of topics. So it sounds like there's a lot of room for interpretation, yeah, not only in that, and perhaps and we'll talk a little bit uh, in just a moment about the Artemis Accords, but but it's it, it sounds like a lot of things could be open for interpretation in the field of space law. I think that that's true because we have, you know, some general principles uh, that we find in the, in the treaty about assistance and cooperation and, um, you know, due regard to the corresponding interests of other states and even phrases like uh, in Article 2, the national appropriation. And we have, you know, what the treaty requires, which was good enough in 1967 to, you know, open up space and, and just begin exploring space. But as space activities have become more comprehensive and sophisticated more actors have undertaken activities and and more, you know there's just a, a greater huge horizon of things we want to do in space we look back at a treaty from 1967 for any answers or guidance and the guidance that we get is sometimes increasingly vague and and you know insufficient to to really foster what we want to do in space now, when most people say the word Artemis, when they're talking about space, they think about NASA's mission to the moon, but there's also something called the Artemis Accords. 
What are the Artemis Accords and what is the impact on those accords on space law? Well, so you're right that the, there is this NASA program, the Artemis program to, uh, what is it, uh, return with the next man and the first woman to the moon by 2024. Correct. And that's, that's, the, that's the Artemis program. But we realize, NASA leadership realizes that in order to do that, in order to accomplish the goals of Artemis, it's going to require uh, international partners including many of the partners on the International Space Station mm -hmm. and some additional partners. So to do that, to get those partners on board and all working in a cooperative fashion on the surface of the moon and in cislunar space, there needs to be some type of agreement between those partners on exactly how they're going to conduct themselves. And so Artemis Accords is just the, the you know, the implementation mechanism for um for the Artemis program on an international level. Again, it's a, a, a lot of basic principles in those Artemis Accords that are going to have to be refined at the operational level once they start you know, drilling down to what the, the cooperative missions are gonna be. So if NASA and JAXA are gonna be doing surface operations on the moon, mm -hmm. they'll start with the Artemis Accords and then get a little deeper into it in, at the operational level with who's gonna do what and really, and really a good contract is if things go wrong, what do I do? What do you do? Who bears the risk? Who, uh, you know, what are the contingency measures? Does it build basically on the, the, the initial space treaty or was it, or did it, did they start from scratch with the Artemis Accords? It definitely builds and really complements the outer space treaty. So, um, if there's, if there's 10 provisions or principles in the Artemis Accords, six or seven or eight of those really just reiterate and reaffirm what's in the outer space treaty and say that this is in the outer space treaty and it's relevant and applicable and necessary to conduct artemis missions and then there's a few elements of the artemis accords that expand on what's in the outer uh, the outer space treaty um as i mentioned there's there's certain silences or vagaries in the outer space treaty that do need to be refined and elucidated with you know further clarification and specificity so one of those is um on transparency another mm -hmm. one is on um, interoperability so that you know uh, artemis partners uh if they're going to be conducting cooperative missions on the moon their activities should be uh interoperable and interoperability is not in the outer space treaty okay. and then another one is on um deconfliction of activities so that's merely if I'm going to be, you know, over here on the moon uh, in a crater, uh, you know, setting up a scientific observatory and you're going to be downrange or a few kilometers away and you're going to be setting up a, a habitation or a mining facility and a few kilometers elsewhere, there's going to be, uh, say, a Apollo heritage site. Mm -hmm. The deconfliction of activities in the Artemis Accords is going to deal with, okay, we can all do those activities, but we have to do it in a way that doesn't prejudice or negatively affect what the other partners are going to do. So that's not necessarily in the Outer Space Treaty, but it certainly accords with, and it certainly is congruent with what's in the uh, what's in the Outer Space Treaty. So those are just some of the principles in in Artemis that um, that are going to be necessary to actually do successful, um, sustainable activities on the Moon. The first 50 or so years of spaceflight revolved around, can we do it? Uh, there was a lot of, can we do it? Can we put people in space? Can we go to the moon? Can we build a space station? Can we do it? And we've kind of proven that we have. And so now we're looking at space commerce 
becoming really a larger and larger part of space flight. What is the legal basis for all of the commerce that is already being done and may be done in space in the future? Yeah, that's I really like that conception of, you know, the first 50 years were can we do it? Now it's you know, why are we doing it and can we continue to do it and can we do it in a sustainable fashion that's really productive? Um, so I mentioned, you know, space law begins at the international level. And it's really when when your listeners read, sit down and read Article 6 and Article 7 of the Outer Space Treaty, it deals with authorization and continuing supervision. So states, as I mentioned, are responsible to other states for their national activities. But the flip side of that is states are under a positive obligation to authorize and to continually supervise those national activities, including the activities of non-governmental, i.e. private actors, for continuing compliance with the Outer Space Treaty and with the other applicable principles of space law. So states have that obligation to go and authorize and supervise and really understand what private actors are supposed to be, are, are, are doing and making sure that it, that it it does not violate and really is in the spirit of international space law. And then guess what? Beyond that, international law is essentially silent. Whatever is states are prohibited to doing, you know, private actors are also prohibited from doing. So, you know, um, Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty says that states cannot place, you know, weapons of mass destruction in space. Okay. Well, guess what? So private entities cannot do that also. So uh, that's 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 all I would say on the international level. But then beyond that, we have national space legislation. And so we look at the national space legislation in the U.S. It's uh, Title 51 of the United States Code, code mm -hmm. and that deals with launching. Uh, and and some there's some on orbit, um, you know, elements and requirements in there. And then we have the FCC um, regulatory scheme for allocating frequencies. Um, so FCC and FAA are really the the operative entities at the governmental level. And then increasingly the Department of Commerce is taking a more active role in fostering commercial space, but also the the, the front door of, of the house of government regulation in regulating commercial activities. When you look at all of these different bodies, these different uh, states, and I use states in the, the sense of nationalities that are creating their own space laws, when you look at, at the opportunity for cooperation, do you feel like there's going to be that cooperation? Is it or because we have U.S. laws, we have European laws with ESA, uh, Japanese laws with JAXA, uh, Russian laws with Roscosmos. How do all these bodies, how do you get all these people together to come up with a, a common space law? Yeah, I mean, there is for the there there. I was about to say that there is for, you know, the, the space law and international law enthusiasts, there is this issue of the potential for fragmentation between international laws. Mm -hmm. But there certainly is a need for harmony between uh, national space laws and, and, in fact, the regulators. And this is because if, you know, I can think of off the top of my head a number of startup companies that maybe they raise capital here in the U.S., but they set up shop elsewhere. Maybe they're building the satellites in Singapore or they're building them in Scotland mm -hmm. uh, and they're going to be uh, maybe they have a separate headquarters uh, elsewhere in Europe and maybe they're going to be launching wherever it's cheap. Maybe they're launching from India. So there's a huge international component. It makes sense to for a startup company that's you know really trying to preserve capital and, and have that long runway um, to go wherever it makes sense for frequencies, for authorization, 
for you know um, tax schemes for uh, for the insurance purposes to find which state has the most favorable insurance scheme, and so they're they're going to be international in scope anyway. So now it's the task really of the the regulators, and I think some regulators are wise to this. Um, for them to also coordinate and make sure that uh, that that any that you know that the proper authorization and supervision is done, that nothing falls through the cracks, um, because there is a chance of things like that, and we have seen a little bit of that happening in the past, where a U.S. company uh, you know does something elsewhere in the world, and right. regulators from both states maybe are, are not aware of, of what they're, that, that company is really up to. So there's the possibility of a space trade organization like there's a world trade organization, I suppose, down the road somewhere. I mean, having it specific to space, I would say, I would say no. Okay. Um, but I think that there is certainly the, necess the necessity of national regulators to have a coordinated approach um, in, to, uh, I guess, you know, assure compliance with the Outer Space Treaty and also serve the national interests, you know, foster their domestic uh, commercial space industries, uh, have them be successful and have them be compliant with the law. There's a there's going to be and there already is a need for those national regulators to coordinate on those their, their activities. As someone who observes this on a day to day basis, are you optimistic regarding that kind of cooperation or could space become a so-called tragedy of commons? I think in some respects, um, and, you know, my organization, Secure World, uh, deals with um, all aspects of space activities, including kind of the military aspects and the environmental aspects of space. In some, um, in, in a certain sense, some areas of space will fall prey to tragedy of the commons. And here I'm speaking about um, space debris in low Earth orbit uh, or even at higher orbits. Um, and we've, we've already kind of seen this need for coordination, else a, a tragedy of the common situation arises. But I think in other respects, um, it's, you know, sp use of space and benefits from space will be a public good. And, and we can see that with, say, GPS or, or other PNT systems. Um, we can see that with the global telecommunication systems where, you know, states and their national actors contribute to something and everyone seems to benefit from it. So uh, there's so many different uses of space and so many different lenses to view space, the security lens, the scientific lens, you know, the national prestige lens, and then the commercial lens and all the different uses, low earth orbit, all the way up to cis lunar space where, um, you know, it, it won't fall prey to any particular paradigm or analysis. Um, and honestly, we, we just have to be very smart in how we go about governing these activities. And in the governance, people should realize that in order to foster commercial space, some rules which foster commercial space is a better circumstance than an absolute absence of rules. If no one is responsible, we kind of have a Wild West situation. But if there are a few rules which foster commercial space, which don't lead to the tragedy of the commons, which don't lead to externalities um, and publicly borne risks, then we have a better outcome uh, over the long term. You're listening to the Xterra podcast. My guest this week is Chris Johnson. Chris is a space lawyer with the Secure World Foundation. 
Chris, you talked a little bit ago about activities that may occur on the moon, anywhere from uh, astronomy to mining to tourism. What are the legal ramifications of making use of the resources that are found on the moon or even on asteroids as we look at uh, the asteroid recovery mission that's going out on, on asteroid Benno right now? I think it's these are great things, and I think they're going to set a precedence. They set the precedence that, in accordance with Article One, in fulfillment of Article One of the Outer Space Treaty, uh, space is open for access and use and exploitation and utilization of space resources. And when one national actor, uh, you know, it will be the U.S., which undertakes the first instance of using space resources in a commercial sense. But I really hope that other national actors and other nations pass national space laws. And we really start to begin using these space resources in a productive and profitable fashion. And as that activity comes online, I guarantee that national actors working at the, at the international realm will, come, will start to come up with some rules some basic rules governing how those activities are conducted. We don't want to have a land grab or territorial claims in space, but we can mm -hmm. certainly use space resources in a productive fashion, which really fosters long-term um, sustainability of, of space and really inhabitation and you know, long-term presence and what they call uh, development of, of, of space resources and, and locations on the moon and asteroids, et cetera, et cetera. But then, other than the original Outer Space Treaty, what is it that prevents a, a nation or a company, for that matter? Uh, because, as you know, anybody who's ever watched one of the gold mining shows on, on reality television knows that, that people are very, very protective of their claims. They find an area with resources, and they don't want somebody else to come in and quote-unquote claim jump and take those resources as well. So... Where will the laws come from that prevent those kinds of activities if nobody can own the moon or can claim any uh, any territory on it? Yeah, this is a bit. Um, it's about this. This is a circumstance which may arise uh, maybe within our lifetimes, but um, you know, as I said, Article Two prohibits states from claiming from annexing territories. So how are we gonna, then going to have? Um, you know, a productive, uh, productive use of those resources, and what's going to prevent other, other, another act from coming along and, uh, you know, taking over what you claim. Mm -hmm. I think we have, as I mentioned, the due regard obligation, Article Nine, and beyond that, the the laws. Uh, you know, so we have Article Nine, Article Two. Beyond that, the law is really silent. So it's going to take really the actors themselves to understand that a system of basic rules and basic norms is better for everyone than a system of no rules. And that system of rules will require respecting the interests of others. And, you know, if you want to be treated fairly, you're going to have to treat others fairly. If you want your property rights respected, you're going to have to respect other property rights. And then therefore a system of how claims will arise will have to be developed. And it won't be that merely whoever gets there first claims it or whoever, you know, shines a laser on an asteroid that, that that's all you need to, to, to stake your claim. I think you're going to have to be able to go there and use it productively uh, a bit like how we use land. You, you know, if the land lies fallow, you can lose title to it. Um, there has to be, 
you know, some showing that you are using it within a certain time frame. And I think that any rights which are allocated for spaces, any rights which are allocated for the use of space resources, I would say have to be time limited. Otherwise they would be appropriation. They would have to be time limited. So you can make, let's say you can have a, a mining operation on this plot on the, on the moon, but you can only have it for say 10 years or 15 years or 20 years. And beyond that, your claim uh, is that, that the, the rights for that area are up for reallocation to another user. And we're just going to have to have a system which, uh, where those norms are respected. Apart from the use of resources, what are some of the primary areas that are going to be that are going to need to be addressed in future laws regarding space commerce? And I'll ask you to really look into your crystal ball. Uh, say we're colonized Mars, and there are people there who are Martians rather than Earthlings, and they decide they want to make their own laws. How can you foresee a future in which their laws supersede the laws that were that were established that got them there? Yeah, I definitely can. I mean, this is the um, you know the moon is a harsh mistress scenario, uh, where you know the actors there no longer feel necessarily bound by rules that were developed hundreds of thousands of miles away by people who are no longer around um, and really cannot enforce those laws. Uh, I, I think that it's absolutely fine if those things were to happen. Right now, you know, international law and law in general, and also property law, uh, are, is very conservative in its methodology. Whatever has worked in the past is what we should go by. Um, and, and so, you know, lawyers are loath to innovate because whatever worked, if a contract worked before, let's use it again. It must work. Um, and so there, that's why contracts and, and, and legal language, uh, you know, uh, has this accretion where it just gets bigger and bigger and outdated and more outdated. But I think that if we are to be doing these novel activities in areas which are fundamentally different from life on Earth, and that by that I mean, you know, space travel, uh, different celestial bodies, background, you know, the void of space, cosmic background radiation, long travel times from Earth, uh, you know, harsh environments. All of those circumstances are so different that we will have to come up with legal innovations. And I think that it's, it's, you know, it's easy to think about these activities, but if you can imagine um, actors from nation A on the surface of the moon, and they're hundreds of thousands of miles from home. Right. And then two kilometers away, there's actors from nation B. Uh, again, they're hundreds of thousands of kilometers from home. They're not going to look at each other and say, that's a different state. They're going to, and, and those people are the other, and those people are our enemies or our competitors. They're going to look at those people and say, oh my gosh, they're up here with us too. We're, you know, they're, they're going to be as incredibly respective of those people um, or, you know, respectful of those, of those individuals. Cause they're both doing such novel and dangerous and historic activity that they're not going to see, at least in the first instance, um, real rivalries or, or as, a, as a threat. They're going to realize how fragile both of, it, uh, both of their activities are. And so obviously a long way from home in a very harsh environment, uh, we may need each other a lot at some point down the road. That's what I was trying to say. Exactly. 
<laughs> well, I, maybe that's why I'm a broadcaster, not an attorney. <laughs> Chris, are there any other issues that you feel like are going to be important in the short term when it, where it comes to, to space law? You know, I think that there are long, uh, short-term pressing issues, and I think one of those is space debris. And I think the other one is mega constellations and mega constellations and their effect on astronomy. First, the space debris one is an absolute pressing concern, even today. Um, and this is a pressing concern for space traffic management, for space situational awareness, and, and really um, coordinating uh, the use of particular orbits. And so there is a real tragedy of the commons problem that must be addressed as soon as possible or right. as soon as practical. And you're talking about the Starlink uh, constellations and some of those that are going to use thousands of satellites to provide internet service. Yeah, and tens of thousands. Right. And these are not pristine satellites. They are commercial off-the-shelf uh, satellites. And because of that, their failure rate is going to be higher than a pristine Hubble Space Telescope or a pristine telecommunications satellite. Right. If only 1% or 2% of 10,000 or 20,000 fail, you're talking about hundreds of pieces of uh, you know, intentionally created space debris. And if that's if, if those satellites, if that space, those spacecraft don't have propulsive capabilities or deorbiting capabilities, then we have a real situation of, you know, essentially um, uh, negligent creation of space debris. Um, so to do that, we need to either not do it or have the technology to remove space debris, to clean up. And so I'm here, I would, you know, mention companies, maybe it's Astroscale, and we're probably going to need other companies that can remove space debris and keep the orbits uh, useful and clean for the long term. So, uh, in addition to that, you know, there is the mega constellation issues and their effect on astronomy and optical astronomy, mm -hmm. both valid and legitimate uses of the space domain. Uh, astronomy is space exploration, um, and therefore they're owed those due regard obligations. So, there may be technological solutions where, you know, the spacecraft maybe doesn't interfere with ground-based astronomy or can be developed in such a way, or maybe there's ways to remediate the smearing effect that those satellites have on the pictures taken of distant galaxies through the use of, you know, maybe computer programs that can kind of erase them. So there may be some technological solutions and there may also be behavioral solutions uh, where, you know, I don't know what those are. Um, you know, it, it's up to the astrodynamicists and the spacecraft operators to come up with some of those. Those are some short-term ones. Um, I would also mention I've been reading more about um, planetary defense mm -hmm. and protecting the Earth from ast asteroids. So this is kind of a fascinating thing that I'm quite interested in. And this is a long-term thing, but we need to have an insurance policy and you know, for, the, for life on Earth. And so we found a little bit less than 40% of all the near-Earth objects uh, that would hit the Earth that are that and and cause damage. But to find the next, the last 60% of the predicted population of, of, of near-Earth objects, we're going to need um, space-based telescopes. And so this is a, a you know that that observation and cataloging and detection uh, and characterization of near-Earth objects is a task that we need to get underway. And then additionally, there is the, the issues of if we see an asteroid which is headed towards the Earth, what do we do then? And so that's the, the technologies for 
threat detection or um, threat mitigation, you know, redirecting an, astero a, 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 a asteroid or destroying the asteroid. And those technologies have yet to be tested. NASA has the DART mission, uh, double asteroid redirect uh, test. Um, but guess what? The same technology to arrive at an asteroid and change its trajectory or, you know, destroy that asteroid, there that same technology or similar technology could be used for asteroid mining. Mm -hmm. So here's an example where, you know, there may be some synergies between the asteroid miners and the asteroid threat mitigation and response uh, actions. Chris, we're out of time. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for the Xterra podcast. My guest has been Chris Johnson, a space lawyer with the Secure World Foundation. Find us on the web at XterraJSC.com and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>